They are the best teams, the main event, the master, the best, the great teams, the champions. Believe it or not, those are the lyrics of the iconic official anthem of the Champions League. Hardly Wordsworth, is it? But watching Europe's football greats gracing midweek floodlit pitches since 1993 has been nothing short of poetry in motion. The final is perhaps the biggest match in our game, a chance to write your name in football folklore. But whilst this is predominantly the fare of Figo, Zidane and Ronaldo, there have been cameo appearances in matchday squads from names in the depths of football obscurity. Today, we shine a light on them the unglamorous extras of Champions League finals gone by. Arthur, welcome again. Hello, Ben. Very good to be here. For those who haven't listened to us, we are two football fanatics who enjoy putting together nostalgic 11s of times gone by. And as Ben says, today we are the unlikely UEFA Champions League finalists 11, yeah. uh, which is very exciting. We're going to be doing a 4-4-2 today which isn't actually that Champions league a formation, mm. uh, but it just seemed to make sense today. If at home you'd like to let us know who you think should slot into this 11, we are on Twitter at 11pod. That's the word and not the number. Right, Ben, in between the sticks. Who <laughs> I I just love this category of unlikely Champions League finalists. And I have to say, out of all my picks, this might just be the most unlikely that I'll mention today. Zelchko Kalac. (laughs) (laughs) That is really in the depths of football obscurity. A player who has played in England, we'll come on to that. In a moment, he was a giant Australian goalkeeper, six foot eight, uh, nicknamed the spider because of his gangly frame. We could call you the spider, Arthur. (laughs) He played an unlikely role in AC Milan's journey to the 2007 Champions League final. Uh, In late 2006, Dida, who you might remember, would tear his ankle ligaments freeing up an opportunity for Kalac in the team. Um, he played 12 minutes against AEK Athens before the full 90 in their group stage game, a 2-0 defeat to Lille. Uh, but Milan would just, still qualify. Sorry, can I, just, can I just stop you there? Athens. Athens. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that classic me pronunciation? You just need to make it sound more exotic and European. Athens. <laughs> With Kalac on the bench, Milan would defeat Bayern in the quarterfinals and Manchester United in the semis, setting up a final and a shot at revenge against Liverpool. Again, Kalac was on the bench as Milan triumphed 2-1 in a relatively uneventful final. Uh, Kaka and Pirlo ran the show, setting up Milan's two goals for Filippo Inzaghi uh, and a, a late dirt coit goal couldn't rally Liverpool enough. So Kalach would claim a winner's medal from the bench. Fantastic. I, I have to say, I didn't realise that he actually played a part in that Champions League run. I thought he was just a potential fixture on the bench because we all know how strong Dida was in that time. Um, One. So... I mean, by all accounts, what you've just told me suggests that his spelling goal wasn't particularly good. Yeah, he did play a role. Uh, In fact, he had an uncanny ability throughout his career to influence success without actually 
doing anything. In 1995, Kalach followed many Australian players in a move to Europe with English Division One side Leicester City. He'd make only three first-team appearances, one each in the League and the League Cup, but his final appearance came as a substitute in the 1996 Division One playoff final against Crystal Palace. The score was 1-1, and he was brought off the bench in extra time by Martin O'Neill because he believed that due to Kalach's gargantuan size he would be a better penalty saver so on he came at the very closing moments of extra time but Steve Claridge scored for the Foxes at the other end just 20 seconds after Kalach came on and they were promoted to the Premiership without needing a shootout his influence when he came on you know the the calmness and presence that he had at the back that enabled them to counter Exactly. I mean, just just get Kalach in your squad and you're destined for success, it seems. When he did influence games, um, it wasn't always for the right reasons. He had some howlers throughout his career, not least for Australia in the 2006 World Cup, where he let a Niko Kovac tame effort squirm over his body. And Ben, you've got the left back as well, haven't you, today? Um, (laughs) And another unlikely Champions League finalist, this time... Jimmy Triore. Oh, Jimmy. What a player. Yeah. We, we love to hate Jimmy Triore, don't we? He's our favourite footballing clown. But he actually played uh, the full 90 minutes and extra time, in fact, uh, in Istanbul 2005, which is probably the most fairy tale football match ever, in my opinion. Absolutely. I had no idea Jimmy played all of that game. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's a game that will probably be remembered for Alonso or Dudek or Schmitzer. Um, But Milan were regarded as favourites before the match. They took the lead through captain Paolo Maldini. Their striker, Henan Crespo, added two more goals before half-time. And a beleaguered Liverpool went in 3-0 down at the break. In the second half, though, Liverpool did launch this incredible comeback. Three goals in a dramatic six-minute spell. Goals from Gerrard, Smitzer and Alonso. Uh, And Liverpool would win on penalties, of course. Dudek saving from Shevchenko in dramatic fashion. That The fifth Champions League win for the Reds. Argentine legend um, Diego Maradona would describe that final Uh, In these words, he said, even the Brazil team that won the 1970 World Cup could not have staged a comeback with Milan leading 3-0. The English club proved that miracles really do exist. I've now made Liverpool my English team. Which is kind of disappointing because Reading have come back from three goals down on many an occasion and he's never said that about them. Absolutely outrageous. It really is. Um, Dudek's iconic penalty save, by the way, Arthur, was voted the greatest Champions League moment ever in a poll on UEFA.com. I think that's completely fair. I mean, you, you hark back to that moment and he was one of the first, I guess Bruce Grobelaar was the original uh, creator of the kind of wobbly knees. He was, uh, motion. yeah. However, Yertsy Dudek just deployed it so well in that penalty shootout. It was something that was a real hark back and certainly I think had its say in that in that shootout victory yeah I remember clearly watching that in bed um I don't know actually I don't know why that's interesting to anyone but yeah I was in bed um and I I switched off straight after the shootout and it was just pure pure joy for the just just knackered as well yeah just so tired um 
But we're meant to be talking about Jimmy Traore, Arthur, who's our left back. Uh, and he was really in the right place at the right time. Uh, this was a far cry from his comedy own goal in the FA Cup against Burnley. Rather, he was on the biggest stage of all. And his performance that day somewhat mirrored Liverpool's. He was shaky and uncertain in the first half, all at sea at times, but then had a very solid second half, even with the heroics of a goal line clearance to to try and keep Liverpool in the game. His honest reflection, I saw their lineup in the locker room and I was like, shit. In that 2005 final, I faced all the emotions from negative to the best moment in my life. That's what I keep in my mind. Never give up. And it was actually all the more special for Jimmy because he was incredibly instructed to come off at half time. But just before the teams went out again for that second half comeback, it turned out that Steve Finnan had picked up an injury and couldn't continue. So Benitez restructured the back line with Jimmy back in it and sent him out for the second half. Wow. So he shouldn't have played in the second half of that game. And thank God he did. Oh, I know. He, he was a big part of that history in the making. Uh, ultimately, he was a lovable player that never really found a club where he'd start regularly. He left Liverpool in 2006 and he played for Birmingham, Charlton and Portsmouth before ending his career in the MLS. Uh, but he always got the last laugh. Reflecting on his career, Jimmy Troy said, when you look at the foreign players who came to Liverpool around that time, I played more games than most of them. I know I was not the best, but I certainly tried my hardest. And I'm very proud because in winning the Champions League, I achieved something that few people have. So that kind of sums up really why I believe he should be in our unlikely Champions League finalists, Eleven. I really like your collection of quotes that you've um, compiled there, Ben. I think he speaks very well. He's just one of us, really. The quote of, I looked at their team and I was like, shit. Yeah. <laughs> just think, that's just exactly how we would all think, you know? Yeah. Like, Shevchenko lining up against you as a defender must have been pretty terrifying. But there he was to clear off the line and deny Shevchenko. So what a player, actually, in many ways. He was a bit of a comical figure, but, you know, he did achieve a lot at, at a very, very good club. Now, if you're familiar with our podcast, we always leave one position up for grabs. And that means we get nominations from some friends of the show and big personalities in football. That's coming later because one of those is the centre-back. But we do have another centre-back in this 4-4-2 formation. And Arthur, you've picked them today. Yes, I have, Ben. And I've gone for Gail Givet. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was in the Champions League final. He was indeed. I think 2004 is most remembered for Jose Mourinho's arrival in this nation's collective conscience as his Porto side won 3-0 against Monaco. Hmm. He had the likes of Deco, Manish, Ferreira, Carvalho starring as they steamrolled a Monaco side that contained Edouard Cisse, Shivani Nonda and... Gail Givet. <laughs> All three of whom, you know, underwhelmed hugely in the Premier League. Uh, what great names. Gail Givet. Wow. Absolutely. And actually, I think I'm being a bit unfair because that Monaco side also had Patrice Evra, Morientes, Ludovic Juli. They had some quality players around 
Gael Givet, but <laughs> I don't think he was the the most quality player. And actually, he did start that Champions League final and actually played the whole game. Um, so he was a bit of a star in that Monaco side. He was in the League A team of the season the following year. Um, and in 2007-8, he moved to Marseille, after which he found um, playing opportunities a little bit limited. And so he moved on loan to Blackburn. As you say, that's where we got a chance to see Gael Juve. He did amass over 100 appearances for Rovers during his five-year stint, but became somewhat synonymous, I think, with the club's disastrous 2011-12 campaign, uh, where they were relegated to the championship under Steve Keane. And there was the infamous pitch invasion from the chicken in protest against the Venkis. Do you remember that? <laughs> of course I do. I think that's the only time I have seen the chicken invade the pitch. But, but again, do get in touch on the At Eleven pod if you know of any other bantams roving around. It was actually in, in a game against Wigan. Do you remember who successfully detained the chicken, Ben? Oh, no, I'd have to guess. I mean, if I was looking to detain a chicken, I'd go for someone like a Ryan Nelson. I think you you have to go for someone with bigger hands, maybe hands in goalie gloves, maybe Ooh. Wigan goalie gloves. Mike Pollitt. No, it's Ali Al-Habzi, Ben. Is it? Wow. He's got a bit of a cheeky smile on his face as he uh, he clutches the chicken. Um, but it's a, it's a great moment, um, albeit very much synonymous with a very bad time for Blackburn Rovers Football Club. It was obviously a turbulent season for Juve. He was prone actually to heart palpitations and was withdrawn against Sunderland due to them. And then he suffered another heart scare during the game against Wigan after a row with Steve Keane. So he was upset from the fact that Blackburn were going to get relegated and also under a lot of stress due to this row with Steve Keane. But fortunately, he, he recovered from that. But that's something that he experienced throughout his career in France as well, uh, which is a bit worrying, uh, especially as we're, we're seeing a lot of that in the game today. Mm. Um, in April, the same season, he'd announced that he wanted to leave Blackburn in the summer and was subsequently dropped by Keane. Uh, for not being in the right frame of mind. But then he was reinstated to the team. I think that probably says all you need to know about Blackburn during that season. If a player said they want, they want to leave the club in the summer, there's no way I'd, I'd reinstate that player into the team. He told a, a pretty hilarious story to L'Equipe of Sam Allardyce's attempt to motivate his players when he was Blackburn manager. Apparently, Allardyce showed them clips from movies 300 and Gladiator to motivate his side for a game against Man United in 2010. Jive <laughs> um, <laughs> was an unused substitute in that game, but he said of it, we were all like, ah! <laughs> After 30 minutes, we were 3-0 down. We lost 7-1. <laughs> Classic Allardyce, classic Allardyce. Classic Allardyce. And actually, if you remember, the heroes in both of those films do die. And so I'm not quite <laughs> sure that much motivation. <laughs> he never really struck me as someone who looks like a footballer, Guile Jive. He had that kind of bushy beard and, and floppy swept over hair. He was almost like a kind of lumberjack in disguise. Yeah, very French looking, I thought, mm. um, which is appropriate considering he is French. Uh, <laughs> but, but also, uh, apparently there was a moment where Blackburn fans um, grew Gail Juvet-like beards. They enjoyed um, cultivating some facial hair, such as that of their hero. He 
returned to his native France, uh, eventually joining Al Avignon, which was his hometown club, before a move to Evian Tonon Gaillard. And actually, sadly, um, his time at Evian didn't last long. This doesn't reflect well at all on Evian. Uh, apparently, the club accused him of growing a beard that made him made him look like a jihadist. Um, so he was he was not having any of that, quite rightly. And so he left Evian and went back to Arles Avignon, where he ended his career. He's now an assistant coach at Monaco for the under-19s, I believe. So his career, he's, he's in a relatively junior standing as a coach. Uh, mm. He did have 12 caps for France, uh, which was fairly impressive given he was a pretty limited player, I would say. Potentially those were accumulated when he was a young hope at Monaco with the world at his feet before the Blackburn stint, I would say. One thing I was interested to learn, actually, Arthur, is that Gael Givet featured as an extra in a film called Substitute. Now, I've, I've never heard of this film. It sounds deeply unconventional. Uh, apparently, it's the tale recorded by Vikash Dorosu of being on the bench at the 2006 World Cup. Wow. It sounds okay. like fun to watch, doesn't it? <laughs> Fascinating. It's like when I read Maya Yoshida's autobiography. All of the autobiography was about how he was struggling to break into the Southampton team and was largely on the bench. Well, a book about a hero with an ongoing struggle is uh, is set to be a bestseller every time, so I don't blame Maya. Um, love that Guile's in there. I feel like we need some cover at right back. We do indeed, and I've decided to choose... A bit of a legend at right back. I've gone for Michael Reisinger. Michael Reisinger. What a man. What a player. He was a feature in the 1995 final between Ajax and AC Milan. Uh, Milan were appearing in their third consecutive Champions League final at a time, a record that has since been matched by Juve and more recently Real Madrid. Milan were a team that were built upon defensive solidity they had a back four of Panucci, Maldini, Costa Curta and Baresi. And they were shielded by Desai, which is just absolutely ridiculous. When you it's consider. incredible. Ajax, meanwhile, were full of exciting young Dutch talent, making 25-year-olds Van der Sar and the De Boers seem incredibly old. They had Clarence Seydorf at 19, uh, Overmars, Edgar Davids and Reisinger were 22, and an 18-year-old Patrick Cliver came off the bench to score the game's only goal in the 85th minute. With regards to niche Champions League finalists, I think a player like Michael Reisiger was probably not surprising. What surprised me was that I expected him to have appeared in a final for Barca, not Ajax. He made 250 appearances for Barcelona and was a mainstay in their side, but it just wasn't a hugely successful time for them. Whilst he was at Barcelona I quite enjoyed the fact that he was linked with a transfer that never actually happened to Manchester United and I love these quotes from players who say things that they clearly will regret I have played for Ajax AC Milan and Barcelona three of the greatest clubs in Europe but now I'm going to the greatest club in the world Manchester United it's a matter of time Barcelona will cooperate because they understand my problem. It will all be okay in a few weeks. And I'm sure that I will be playing next year with Ruud van Nistelrooy. And I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, man, it makes you squirm, doesn't it? And it's, it's kind of all the more ironic that when he did make his way over to England, it was with Middlesbrough. <laughs> Indeed, it's just bizarre. 
when he moved to Steve McLaren's Middlesbrough, I would I would say that their team is a bit of a stroll down memory lane. In 2004-5, they had Viduka, Hasselbank, Macaroni, Ekiog, Boateng, Zenden, Mendieta, just absolute legends of the game. And that yeah. McLaren side um, were enormously successful. They matched the pedigree that they so clearly showed. Uh, they followed up on their League Cup win the season before he arrived with a seventh place finish in the Premiership and a UEFA Cup round of 16. And then the following season, bolstered by the arrival of Yakubu, uh, they reached the FA Cup semi-final and the UEFA Cup final. So they did enormously well during that period. And wow. Steve McLaren was probably a big source of that. He only made 15 Premier League starts, though, uh, in an injury-ravaged campaign before he was allowed to return to Holland at the age of 32 with PSV. Uh, in his second year there, he was reunited with former teammate Clivert, and the two of them won the Eredivisie, although they didn't play that much. He's another player who is of Surinamese descent, uh, mm. but unlike Ryan Donk, he did play for the Netherlands. He made... 72 appearances, uh, scoring one goal. I quite enjoyed as well this quote, uh, which was ahead of the Netherlands World Cup qualifier with Ireland in 2000. He wrote on his website, assuming Roy Keane plays, if we're smart, we could get him a red card because he has a dodgy temperament. We will have to provoke Keane in some way, perhaps holding his shirt or walking into him after he passes the ball. Players are also known to whisper comments about another player's mother or the size <laughs> parts of his body. I don't ah! like that side of the game very much, but if it helps us to win, then it's worthwhile. <laughs> I just think that's bizarre. All of his times walking into him after he passes. What, what a weird thing to say. That, the fact that he posted this on his website prior yeah. to the game, so Roy can obviously read this if he wants to, is I a bit bizarre. I love it when players have websites and their own unique URLs. I just find that very strange. Why would you ever want to type in a player's name and look at their personal website? It's peculiar, isn't it? For a search for the 11, then. That is the only reason I can think of doing it. Yeah, fair enough. Michael Reisinger, great pick. Whacked away, but not fully to Jimmy Traore. He tries a volley! Spectacular goal! Absolutely incredible from Jimmy Traore! Well, the Romanian referee has picked up the star-studded Champions League ball and it's half-time. We're taking a short break from our unlikely Champions League finalists 11 uh, to recognise the fact that this is probably coming out just before Christmas. And Arthur, I've prepared some information for you about a team you may not have heard of who are related to Christmas in more ways than one. Okay, I'm looking forward to hearing this. Have you heard of a team from Finland called FC Santa Claus? <laughs> no. I don't really know how you explain to someone in the playground that you support FC Santa Claus. I don't know how tribal that would ever get. But it does exist. They're a football club from Rovaniemi which is in Finland, as I say, and they play in the sixth tier of Finnish football. So um, a reasonably high standard. Uh, they are named as they play in Santa's hometown, 
Rovaniemi is apparently where he was uh, he was brought up. Is that near the North Pole? Yeah, very near, very near. Okay, um, good. The, the, the team is nicknamed Santa. Why not? Come on, Santa. Um, and they developed a legend, FC Santa Claus, about how the club was formed. They claimed that the club was founded by Santa's elves kicking a leather football around in the snow when they were not wrapping Christmas presents. The club states on their official literature that they had to ask permission from Santa to use his name, uh, which was granted after Terho Iljin, the club's founder, made an official request to speak to him. In addition, Santa Claus serves as their honorary coach each season. He's yet to be sacked, despite them languishing in the sixth tier of Finnish football. Now that is loyalty. Uh, And he attends the team's first match of every season to launch their campaign, uh, often showing up at games during the season as well. So I suppose he's got like a season ticket as well as being an honorary coach. Um, I think he's, I see Santa Claus as almost like a director of football for this side in Rovan Niemi. He kind of steps in and, and pulls a few strings every now and then. I have to say, he must have accumulated many years of coaching experience because mm. he has been around since the dawn of time. And so his tactics must have developed so much during yeah. that time. I think the game has changed over the years, but Santa's love of football has not. Um, they're actually managed at the moment by Ralph Wunderlich, who is a German coach, Uh, And asked about his time at FC Santa Claus, he said, I feel so proud and happy the whole time. Going outside in the jacket with the Santa Claus logo, the kids come up to me and give me a high five. When I was here the first time, Santa walked up to me and said my name. Even though I'm an adult, I was like, wow, Santa Claus just said my name. It gave me such a good feeling. That's the sort of interview that I imagine the sort of new Scunthorpe United coach might give, having strolled around the town centre. Just like a kid at Christmas, literally every day. I know. It is great. I mean, I'd love, love, love an FC Santa Claus fan to get in touch with the show and tell us what it's like. Um, I think I've adopted them now as my second favourite side behind Reading. It would have actually been a very good side to suggest for a player to go to out of England if they're out of favour, yeah. rather than FC Vaduz. It could have been a perfect location for the Harry Winkses of this world. Yeah, I mean, I'd love one day FC Santa Claus to make the Champions League. Um, but while we're waiting for that to happen, we thought we'd compile a Christmas eleven of players uh, who perhaps might like a move to FC Santa Claus in the near future. I've kind of given an overarching name to this team, Arthur, I hope you don't mind, of Emerson Royal David City for the name of our Christmas team. Um, And we've kind of come up with some suggestions. So, I mean, in goal, I was thinking maybe Pepe Reindeer. Very good. I love that. Yeah. At the back, I've decided to introduce another former Liverpool uh, reference here. We've gone for Skirtle Dubs. Oh, yes. Love Skirtle Doves. That's a great suggestion. And I thought maybe to give a bit more pace to the back line, we could have Lee Young Pio Ho Ho um, just playing off him to the left hand side. What do you think of that? No, I enjoy that. I think pace is useful because I'd actually like to introduce a bit of a solid foundation at the back with Missile Tony Adams. Oh, what a lovely combination of the kind of the romantic and the aggressive. 
missile Tony Adams. That's wonderful. Um, and he would probably be keeping um, United Mates football podcast. Fantastic suggestion. You know, deck the fits halls out of the side, I imagine. The midfield is ultra competitive, really. It is. I mean, five gold frames probably has to get a mention just holding. What about Dimitri Mintz-Paye? <laughs> he he could be there um but i think so i i could imagine him striking up quite a good partnership actually with former west brom player snowman Choi, <laughs> and maybe rounding off the midfield we'd hop back to bethley hendry <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah i think that would be that would be really fantastic bethley hendry five gold rings snowman Choi. And who was your other one? Sorry. Dimitri Mintzbayer. Oh, yeah. How could I forget? Up front, there's lots of options. Um, I liked Oscar's suggestion on Twitter of David Eggnog. I thought that was really clever. Um, and I'd also like to throw in Ding Dong Fangju Merrily on High. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Have you had any thoughts? <laughs> yeah. I'd like to suggest Denver Bar Humbug. <laughs> <laughs> I also considered keen speech. <laughs> yes, um, that's good. And uh, Sorry, this has descended into a bit of a bit of a fit of giggles, really. Yeah, I mean, it is so ridiculously funny. It's just a joke. It is. It is Christmas after all. Um, and thank you, nineties football as well. Costil pantomime, I thought was a really nice suggestion. Maybe for our reserve goalkeeper. Wow, but, the Christmas eleven's yeah. really taking shape. Yeah, that was that was hugely festive. Yeah, thanks so much for putting up with that, presuming you have. At 11 pod, if you think of any more um, that might work their way into their Christmas 11, and, and maybe one day might play for FC Santa Claus. Who knows? We've had so many iconic wingers in Champions League finals gone by. Um, who's the least iconic that you can think of for our left midfield slot, Arthur? I would say the least iconic is Kiki Musampa. <laughs> no way did he play in a Champions League final. He was rubbish for City. He was pretty rubbish and actually wasn't even that good for Ajax. Oh. Um, but a year after the final in which Reisiger played, Ajax were at it again in 1996 and 19-year-old Kiki Musampa started for them that day. They faced another Italian giant in Juventus this time. In Rome, they came up against a Juventus side who surprised them with their power and energy. Juventus took an early lead. Ajax managed to peg them back, but eventually wilted and were beaten 4-2 on penalties. And sadly, Ajax have not been back to a Champions League final since. Mark Overmars missed the final through injury but he was sat in the dugout and after the penalties, he raised his suspicions to Ronald De Boer that not everything was quite right. De Boer said, Overmars told me very quickly that he felt there was not something right. He saw an opponent... <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing because <laughs> he raised his suspicions that something wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he so told me I'm quite deliberately, crazy. something is not right. <laughs> <laughs> He saw an opponent who did not look normal out of his eyes. He felt like he was taking something. Fanidi George, too, was surprised by Juventus's intensity. He said, normally a player can do that for maybe 20 minutes. When you can do that for 90, 
120 minutes and at the end of the season it is not normal it was only a subsequent italian prosecution of juventus for doping in 2004 that raised suspicions about the 1996 win club doctor ricardo agricola was given a suspended prison sentence for providing performance enhancing drugs to the players but he was acquitted on appeal the following year it's never been proven but there's certainly a bitter taste in the mouth for Ajax when remembering 1996, uh, that they weren't exactly on a level playing field. Kiki Musampa, meanwhile, didn't hang around at Ajax. <laughs> he left for Bordeaux in search of regular football. Uh, after a mixed spell there, he went to Malaga, uh, where he really began to hit the ground running. He scored 22 goals in 96 games, uh, which is a pretty good return for a wide midfielder. In a 3-0 victory over Ghent in the Intertoto Cup, uh, Musamba got a goal and an assist. And I just enjoyed reading, uh, as uh, the eleven does, it sends you down wormholes online. And I yeah. found an article on El Centro Campista uh, that's written by Jamie Milligan. And he writes, I remember being blown away by a little dreadlocked winger. When people ask me where my fascination for Spanish football comes from, I immediately relate to that night. <laughs> the, idea, the idea that it's not Ronaldo, it's not Messi, it's not any of these unbelievable La Liga players over time. It's Kiki Musampa. <laughs> so good. I mean, that was when the Man City Galacticos, if you like, were forming. And it was a weird spell for the club. They had players like Bernardo Caradi. They had, um, I think it was... Bianchi, wasn't it? Rolando Bianchi. Yeah. And then Kiki Musampa. Yeah. He signed on loan for Man City in January 2005. Um, he scored three goals in 14 games during his loan. His first City goal was a spectacular volley in the last minute, which was the winner against Liverpool and gave Stuart Pearce his first win as City manager. A really, really good snap first time shot. And he's just, he's got that iconic look on the pitch. He certainly does with his long dreadlocks and he's very quick. By all accounts, a fairly talented player, but just had his problems with injury and inconsistency. So didn't really show it on a regular basis in the Premier League. The loan was made permanent, but his form disappeared and his career started to wind down with stints at Trabonspor, AZ Alkmaar, FC Sol and Willem too. Oh yeah, Willem Twee. Um, I, I think I have a uh, pendant of theirs that my dad might have bought back from a holiday. That's so random. Yeah, <laughs> I do have some weird merchandise, it must be said. I really love that. <laughs> Topically, um, given our, our short interlude now, I've just read the most fantastic fact about Kiki Masampa. Um, during his time at Manchester City, he was affectionately known as Chris. <laughs> because okay. if you if you transfer Kiki for Chris, his name is Christmas Hamper. <laughs> oh, how could we have missed that? That is crazy. Oh wow. Chris. So good. So good. Welcome to the eleven Christmas Hamper. <laughs> That's brilliant. Do you want to you want to do a centre midfielder? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Was that your your casual introduction? Yeah, that, that, was, that was that was me. Yes, um, we're going to go back to 1999, which is a fun year for Manchester United fans. Their treble 
wrapped up in a 2-1 win against Bayern Munich. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer completed the comeback, but also in that side you had Beckham, Giggs, Schmeichel, Stamm, Sheringham. But did you know that on the bench that day was Jonathan Greening? Jonathan Greening? Yeah. I was surprised too. I didn't even know he's a United player. He was coming through. He made several kind of cup appearances, um, but he came through the United Youth Academy. A great passer, reliable and determined, but never particularly flashy. Teammate Dean Kiley described how Greening plays, saying he sprays passes around like a quarterback. And undoubtedly, he was a good player, but certainly not one you'd expect to see at the pinnacle of European football. Whilst he never played in the Champions League that year for Manchester United, he did make the bench in the final due to injuries and suspensions to Roy Keane and Paul Scholes. And he would actually play in the Champions League twice the following year for Man United in victories over Dinamo Zagreb and Sturm Graz once their place in the knockouts was already sealed. He was a very British footballer, Jonathan Greening. Uh, unlike many of the others on our list, he, he never really made any impact on the European scene, playing for Borough, West Brom and Fulham of note, um, with his career ending at Tadcaster Albion, where he played alongside his younger brother, Josh. Um, I was reading up about his time at West Brom and apparently he was one of the real pranksters in the dressing room, Jonathan Greening. Um, He describes us as follows. The best prank that's been played on me was definitely by Andy Johnson in Revenge. He's totally scared of cotton wool, proper petrified. And if he sees a bit of it, he'll run out of the room. So we all filled his trainers and boots with cotton wool and he went absolutely mental. I've never seen anything like it. I thought it was a joke at first, but he was nearly crying. The next week I came into work, went back after training to my car and found he tied loads of mice to my aerial and all around my mini. I had to drive all the way back to Sutton Coldfield with 25 mice all over my car. (laughs) They were all dead. He got them out of his garage and I couldn't believe it. I was laughing my head off. It was good banter, but my missus wasn't very happy. <laughs> what a tale. That seems not very comparable. No. Wool with dead mice. I know, I know. It's kind of grim, right? But also the fact that Andy Johnson's petrified of cotton wool. I know. Real fact. Wow. One thing that surprises me about Jonathan Greening, I would say, is that he scored so few goals in his career. I saw Mm. him as quite an attacking player, but he only scored 22 goals in his whole career. Seven in 196 appearances at West Brom. Mm. I didn't expect to see him named in a Champions League matchday squad, that's for sure, though. Um, But welcome to the side, Jonathan. And who's going to be playing alongside him, Arthur? I've chosen another 90s midfielder. And this is Paul Lambert. Really? Yes. In the final? In the final. And actually playing a starring role. It was Paul Lambert playing for Borussia Dortmund in the oh, final. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realise he played for them, actually. Yeah. 1997. Lambert had been honing his craft for the best part of 10 years with St Mirren and Motherwell. 
uh, before being invited for a trial in 1996 with Borussia Dortmund, who were managed by Otmar Hitzfeld. Um, Hitzfeld had recalled Lambert impressing for Motherwell during a UEFA Cup tie against the Germans back in 1994, and he saw him available for free, so he thought he'd give him a go. Um, once he signed, he said, I completely immersed myself in German football culture. I forced my way into the Borussia Dortmund team on the opening day of the Bundesliga season, and I was never out of the side. I think if you ask the players, they will say that they respected the fact that I did that, and they liked me as a person for it. People talk about world-class players flippantly, but that Dortmund dressing room was crammed full of world-class stars, and they bought my game on so much. I fitted into the point where I felt great in their company. He was a workman-like midfielder at the base of midfield and was certainly a large part in their success. I would say it was no coincidence that they kept five clean sheets en route to the final with Lambert dominating in defensive midfield. Uh, in the final, they faced reigning champions Juventus uh, and Dortmund were heavy underdogs. Juventus had already stormed their way to the Scudetto uh, and meanwhile, Dortmund had finished third in the Bundesliga and they'd scraped through their fairly easy Champions League group in second place. And Lambert was tasked with the enormous challenge of keeping the mercurial Zinedine Zidane quiet. Zidane had absolutely lit up um, the Champions League and uh, Serie A that season. He was skillful. He was quick. He went on to become one of the greatest players of all time. But Lambert stifled Zidane for large swathes of the game. He man-marked him to the point where the Frenchman's creativity just wilted. With their midfield tussle ongoing, Karl Heinz Reidler scored twice for Dortmund. And although Del Piero pulled one back in the second half, as listeners to the eleven will know, a, an iconic goal from Lars Ricken yeah. secured the famous 3-1 win that day. And actually, Lambert was man of the match in the game. He really? dominated in midfield. He laid on the first goal with a looping cross to Rydler at the back post. And he became the first Scotsman and British player to lift the trophy with a foreign team. Uh, it was, of course, Dortmund's first UEFA Champions League as well. He did leave Dortmund the following season. Um, he raised a banner to the crowd saying simply, thank you, fans of Borussia although there's a slightly unfortunately placed apostrophe in fans, which slightly rankled, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> not known for his grammar, Paul Lambert. I, I kind of weirdly remember him for a goal scored in 1998 that <laughs> I, I didn't see live, but I've seen on clips on Sky in the past. It was for Celtic against Rangers in the old phone game. An absolute howitzer um, by the soon-to-be Aston Villa manager but yeah I, I kind of didn't really associate him with Borussia Dortmund maybe that's my ignorance um, and certainly no, looking through the team sheet that day there were a number of players on that lineup for Dortmund that kind of ring a bell but you wouldn't expect to see in a final the likes of Stefan Chapuisat the um, the Swiss striker of course I I don't think it's it's a reflection on you at all that you don't remember him I didn't either and you know, flicking through Champions League finals and suddenly being met by the name Paul Lambert in the centre of midfield for Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League final certainly surprised me a lot. As you say, he went on to Celtic and he made more than 200 appearances for them uh, to add to his 40 international caps. 
And subsequently, his managerial career, I would say, has been a series of peaks and troughs. He led Norwich City to two successive promotions. My Norwich City supporting friend Steve absolutely raves about him. But his spells since at Aston Villa, Blackburn, Wolves, Stoke City haven't been particularly successful. I think he definitely harbours an ambition to go and coach in Germany one day. Uh, because I think although his period there was fairly brief, he remembers it incredibly fondly and loves German football. And so he'd love to head out there at some point. Um, welcome to the eleven, Paul Lambert. Very nice. Um, and on the right-hand side, I've picked a player who I think will conjure up a lot of nostalgia for some of our listeners. And that's Stefano Iranio. <laughs> That is such a great name. Oh, yeah, yes. it really is. I mean, Derby County signed the Italian winger in 1997 and it raised a few eyebrows. Why was such a successful 30-year-old signing for a mid-table Premier League team in the peak of his career? And looking back at his history, you can see why eyebrows were raised. I mean, in 1993... Iranio had played for AC Milan in their Champions League final against Marseille. But on the biggest stage of all, sadly, Milan would miss out. Iranio would be an impact sub from the bench coming on for Marco Van Basten with five minutes to go against Marseille. Uh, but they couldn't change the game. And the French side went on to win the Champions League that year. A single 43rd minute header from Marseille's Basile Bolly would win the match and Iranio would be disappointed. So I suppose the reason why I'm saying he's an unlikely Champions League finalist is not so much that he wasn't at his peak in Milan, but it was the fact that he became a more iconic name for us, playing for a mid-table Derby County side. It was a match made in heaven. Uh, He'd form an indelible, an unlikely indelible bond with manager Jim Smith and become a Pride Park legend. Um, Jim Smith was like a second father to me, he admitted. We were so close and we had a great relationship. I think as a team, we maybe could have gone on and done well further up the league too. We played some very good matches against big teams under Jim. And it was such an exciting time to be a Derby County fan. They not only had Iranio, but also Aljoza Rasanovic, Igor Stimak and Jacob Lawerson, Francesco Baiano, who formed a great partnership with Iranio. And I think Iranio's time, maybe the highlight, was a wonderful goal he scored against Leicester City in 2001. He jilted in and out of the defence, flummoxed three before curling into the bottom corner and peeling away to celebrate. He became a real hero. It's just so surprising that he traded the likes of Papin, Hullet and Maldini in the 1993 Champions League final for playing alongside Higginbottom, Rigott and Dean Burton for Derby only years later. I think, you know, the draw of Jim Smith is very clear for all to see. Um, what a legend of the game. And actually... <laughs> I can see that when Smith resigned in October 2001, Iranio actually chose to leave Derby <laughs> County. So when his father figure uh, went missing, he decided to uh, decided to join him. Um, it's such a peculiar combination, isn't it, Smith and Iranio? It is, although he went to Serie C2 side, Pro Sesto, 
so I'm not sure actually of their history, but whether Jim Smith went to them or not. <laughs> I'm not sure. Sadly, Iranio's reputation has been somewhat blotted by comments he made um, whilst working as a TV pundit in Italy. Um, some abhorrent racism, really, about black players, which, of course, we don't condone by by any means. So, yeah, Iranio, a controversial figure off the pitch, who's lost a few fans in more recent times. But certainly when we hark back to those di- days in a Derby shirt and indeed in a Milan shirt, um, he was a footballing icon. We've got two leading the line today. Um, Arthur, you've picked one of them, I believe. I have indeed. I've chosen the 2001 final uh, where Bayern Munich took on Valencia. And I was absolutely delighted to see John Carew's name on the team sheet. Really? You are kidding me. John Carew. What a player. He was part of a Valencia team that had just such a classic midfield. Vicente, Baraka, Albelda. Amar, Keely Gonzalez, Mendieta, just all of those. I mean, you can't you can't find room for them all. It's a joke. Um, <laughs> and they had former terrible Saints manager Mauricio Pellegrino starting in defence as well. Every goal scored in their final was a penalty. Mendieta converted his after just three minutes, and Stefan Effenberg followed him in in the 50th minute. Carew slotted his penalty. But Bayern would go on to win the game 5-4 on penalties. His goals in the campaign were absolutely crucial. They included a 75th minute header in a 1-0 home win against Arsenal in the second leg of the quarterfinal. In a nice quirk, this final saw the two previous losing finalists face off. Uh, Bayern having lost to United in 99 and Valencia losing to Real in 2000. Uh, So they both had a chance to redeem themselves. And sadly for John Carew, it was Bayern Munich who did. Carew had arrived in Valencia off the back of some excellent goal scoring in his homeland. First with Valerenga, then with Rosenborg, the country's greatest team, arguably. He won La Liga twice with Valencia before heading to Aston Villa via spells with Roma, Besiktas and Lyon. He became a bit of a legend at Villa. He made 131 appearances and scored 48 goals. Initially signed, I would say, as a replacement for Juan Pablo Angel, he formed a formidable partnership with Gabi Agbonlahor and scored double-figure league goals for three seasons in a row uh, before the arrival of Emil Heskey began to limit his playing time. A subsequent move to Stoke City saw him ridiculed for a typo in a tattoo he got on his neck. Right. It appears as Ma vie, mes règles. This was apparently supposed to mean my life, my rules. Yeah. But either through the tattoo's mistake or because Carew can't spell properly, the accents on règle are incorrect. So it actually reads as my life, my menstruation. (laughs) (laughs) 
Which is just bizarre. I mean, first of all, the teammate who spotted that, first of all, well, must be a Frenchman, I guess. I don't know who who Carew's Stoke City French teammates were at the time, but one of them had an eye for detail. Oh, my um, goodness. So good. He had 91 caps for Norway, scoring 24 times, and was, quite incredibly, Norway's first black player since his playing career, or actually also whilst he was playing. He's had a fairly successful acting career. He starred in a few Norwegian films, as well as playing the role of Jungle Warrior in the Disney film Maleficent alongside Angelina Jolie, which I found completely bizarre. I don't think I've actually seen that film, but the idea of John Carew starring (laughs) in a Disney film (laughs) seems a bit bizarre. Oh, John Carew. That's fantastic. I love that story about his tattoo. That's amazing. (laughs) Alongside Big John, um, I've gone for another northerly European. Uh, I've picked Ida Good Johnson. Oh, Ida. I yeah. Think, was he was he Barcelona though? Barcelona, yeah. I mean Barcelona. he's he was actually a quality player. I mean he was icy cool, physical but fleet of foot. He had a good eye for a pass and a decent goal scoring record, some of which were phenomenal. I remember a 2003 overhead kick against Leeds, so well timed and he really was a talented boy. But why Why a surprise then that he's in the Champions League final? Well, for me, it comes down to two things. One, it was such an understated spell at Barcelona that is easily forgotten. It would follow a successful spell at Chelsea, but then be followed up by spells at Stoke, Fulham and Bolton, as well as time in Greece, Norway, China, Belgium and India. He would only average around 20 appearances per season throughout his career because of injury. Uh, And when he signed for Barcelona in in £8 million, he was actually behind Messi, Eto'o and Henri in the pecking order. So was limited to uh, an incredibly small amount of game time. In the 2009 Champions League final, where he made his appearance on the bench... Um, He would actually play against Shakhtar and Sporting in the group stages uh, and he'd make a one minute cameo against his former club Chelsea in the second leg of the semi-final. But he was unused uh, in that final game himself, a game against Manchester United that Barcelona would win 2-0. And the, the second reason I guess it's surprising to me is that he is Icelandic. I mean, the country has a population of 366,000 people. He's the only Icelandic player to win the Champions League. An incredible story, actually, about his time with Iceland. He once replaced his dad as a substitute for the Icelandic national team on his debut. Classic piece of pub trivia. Yeah, it it was a match against Estonia. um, And a 17-year-old Ida would would make his debut coming on for his dad, Arnor, a 34-year-old veteran marksman. Um, they wanted to play together at some point for their nation, but sadly an injury to Arnor uh, and an injury to Ida would uh, end up not coinciding, not dovetailing, and they never actually managed to play before Arnor um, ended up retiring. His dad said it was, of course, emotional. It was a crazy thing to look across the changing room and see your own son there. I tried to be a good role model growing up and the best father I could be. And seeing Ida in the same changing room as me gave me great pride. I think 
a summary of why he fits into this side is provided for me by Tom Victor writing for Planet Football. He said, in the Oscar-winning film Forrest Gump, the titular character is present across a variety of historical events, from the growth of the Black Panthers to the Watergate scandal. If you're looking for a sporting equivalent, it's either A, far-fetched, or B, Idiger Johnson's career. Footballers don't find themselves in successful sides by accident, and they certainly don't do so over and over again without having something about them. If Forrest's young Elvis was Ida's young Ronaldo, the footballer almost has more names and more moments to tick off later in his career. That was a nice summary, I felt, of uh, Ida's position in uh, a quality side on a quality day. It's gone in the direction of Drogba, just over his head. Gareth with the downward header. Oh, it's gone in! What an unbelievable start to the second half. Good Janssen applying the final touch to bring Chelsea level. So as we mentioned earlier on the show, we always have a position that is up for grabs and you get to decide who takes it up. On Twitter, we have a poll coming up. Uh, Go to at 11 pods where you can place your vote. And we're very lucky to have a nomination today from comedian Josh Pugh. Really worth checking out his work. He's a big football fan as well, and he's behind the Grassroots Coach Twitter page. You can check out a book of his memoirs on Amazon. Let's see who he has nominated today. Okay, so my nomination for a centre-back as part of this dynamic pairing, I'm going for probably the least intimidating six-foot-three skinhead on the planet, the Swiss maestro, Philippe Sendros played quite a few games for Arsenal in the Premier League and he was kind of much maligned and rightfully so for, for much of his career. It's just facially, he just looks like he's in a constant sulk. He's, like he's on the verge of tears constantly. And to be fair, if Emmanuel Aboué was getting picked ahead of me, I, I'd probably be quite upset. So yeah, Philippe Sendros, best of luck to him. Even if he wins, he's going to look upset. So yeah, get him in, Philippe Sendros. Love that suggestion from Josh. And yeah, he's right. Philippe Senderos is always perpetually angry. Yes, certainly um, fairly angry at times. I would say I don't think he was actually that bad in terms of his ability. I think it's surprising that he should have played in a Champions League final. But I I think similarly to Jimmy Traore, I don't think he was actually that bad. He was pretty bad. I mean... Really? Senderos? <laughs> An unlikely Champions League finalist, no doubt. Thank you so much, Josh. Do check out his stand-up and his book as soon as you get the chance. Arthur, you've nominated someone, haven't you? I have. I've got a bit of a love in today with Aston Villa. Okay. Or Martin Larson. Oh, Martin Larson, yeah. I mean, I, I actually remember him being quite a good player, but I don't remember him playing in a Champions League final. No, I, he didn't actually play. This is a bit of a cheat. Uh, he was on the bench. Uh, oh, okay. 2003 final, um, which wasn't the most exciting one, frankly. It was a clash between uh, Italian giants Juve and AC Milan, two absolutely formidable defences keeping each other at bay. Uh, the score was perhaps unsurprisingly nil-nil. Uh, and the penalty shootout that happened afterwards was controversial in itself, 
five out of the 10 penalties were saved, although Dida and Buffon were shown in replays to be off their line for all of them. <laughs> uh, wow. And AC Milan won the shootout 3-2. On the bench, as I say, was Martin Larson, a player I had just completely forgotten played for AC Milan. The trouble he found was that he was in a team competing with Nesta and Maldini, uh, mm. as well as the mighty Roque Jr. <laughs> when, <laughs> when AC Milan further strengthened the position with the arrival of Yap Stam in the summer of 2004, the writing was very much on the wall for him and he moved to Aston Villa for £3 million. He made fewer than 30 appearances in his first three years at Villa with his knees very much proving an inhibition on his career. However, he did overcome these niggling knee injuries and performed superbly during the 7-8 season. Uh, he was a rock at the heart of the Villa defence and a threat from set pieces uh, due to his excellent aerial ability. He was named Supporters Player of the Year at the end of the season um, and was subsequently named captain for the following term. He unfortunately did have to retire due to the recurrence of these persistent injuries in 2009, having made 53 appearances for his nation. And he's certainly a player, I feel, that is a bit similar to perhaps Ledley King, Philippe Christenval, both excellent players who were uh, loved by fans, but were just dogged by injury mm. um, and also a bizarre Champions League final appearer. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, I mean, I, I do remember him being a very good player at Aston Villa, but I was not aware of his Champions League appearances. Um, and joining him, the final name in the poll is one that I simply can't believe. And that is Joachim Bjorklund. <laughs> How can a player who played the majority of his time in the Championship have been on the bench in a Champions League final. I just don't understand it. Um, he was a Swedish defender, fearless and strong. He played for Rangers, Sunderland and Wolves. Sandwiched in between, though, was a trip to the Champions League final with Valencia. Um, it was in 2000. He was an unused sub. Uh, and it was a fairly unremarkable and one-sided final. Real Madrid won it 3-0. Goals from Morientes, McManaman and Raul. And it was only really remembered because it was a landmark day for Spanish football. It was the first time a Champions League final had been played between two teams from the same nation. Bjorklund himself was very well respected at Sunderland, um, but he would actually get relegated in his first season there. So just three years after making a Champions League final matchday squad, he was playing in the second tier of English football. He'd failed to get promoted the next season despite a third place finish uh, and then signed for newly relegated Wolves, having made just five appearances and again failing to win promotion. So two failed bids to get back up into the Premier League. And maybe it's just the Champions League that did it for Bjorklund. Um, I couldn't help but notice that during his early career at IFK Gutterberg, he and his teammates achieved a surprise 3-1 victory over Manchester United in the group stages. This was in 94-95. Uh, and ultimately, he would help them to win Group A ahead of FC Barcelona, Manchester United and Galatasaray before getting knocked out in the quarterfinals 
by Bayern Munich. So a, a bizarre career, really, for Bjorklund, where he would be at the very pinnacle and then in the championship. Yeah, a completely bizarre addition to the Champions League final. OK, it's time for On the Bench, players who just missed out on today's eleven. Um I'd like to draw your attention then to Fabio, the slightly, <laughs> oh, the slightly less talented brother of Raphael, I'd say, who actually started at right back for Man U in the 2011 Champions League final. Um, Man U lost 3-1 to Barcelona, and I don't think that's perhaps a surprise when um, the likes of, of Fabio was having to deal with Messi, David Villa. Uh, not an easy proposition for him. That's incredible. And, and actually one name that I was going to mention, purely because I associate him with Rangers Football Club, uh, is the 1997 Dortmund goalkeeper, Stefan Kloss. I had no idea that he'd made a Champions League final uh, and won one, in fact. So running us through today's 11, we've got Zelshko Kalak in goal, left-back Jimmy Traore, centre-back Gael Givet, alongside your choice. Head to Twitter for that and Michael Reisiger right back. In the centre of midfield, we've got Paul Lambert alongside Jonathan Greening. On the left, Kiki Musampa. On the right, Stefano Aranio. And up front, John Carew alongside Ida Johnson. Thank you for listening. Listening.